So, but uh, I wanted to get started, um, and the, this morning, as I had kind of foreshadowed last two weeks ago, um, I think it'll be helpful for us to kind of, as we work our way through this passage in Romans 3:21 through 26. Um, to now take a look for a couple of weeks at the words that are in this section. And I think for those of us that have had the opportunity to study this section deeply, it just, you never can find the bottom of it. It's just so, so deep and so wide. And I hope that, that we'll see that um, this morning. So we're going to do a little bit of a word study, but I, I wanted to open up with a couple of thoughts, and especially after I heard some of the music that the that we're going to get in joy this morning. And I think a good place to start for our hearts, if you'll allow me, is going to be in the book of Hebrews, which is just a wonderful book um, that just exalts in the most wonderful of ways all that we're learning in this section about this but now. You see all these shadows and copies that that pointed to something that these Old Testament saints knew and trusted was coming, but they didn't see it clearly. It was dimly, it was veiled. But this but now that Paul introduces us to, out of all of his Jewishness, which is so beautiful about Paul as Saul to Paul, um, just expresses that so wonderfully and with such continuity from the Old Testament, right? Um, I don't know that, that you could find a, 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 a single mountain peak in the book of Hebrews, but this is certainly one of those treasures for all of us, which would be all of us, who have been through, um, are going through or headed in to the trials of life that the scriptures so constantly tell us about. Um, look at Hebrews 4, verse 14. And I want to just stir our hearts in a couple of ways, but start with this passage. Since then, so there's a little bit of the writer of Hebrews, many of which think is either Paul or his clone, right, if you <laughs> read it. Since then, so here comes another one of these but now. Since then, we have a great high priest. And there's your, there's your purpose behind the song you guys were just singing. This great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, since we have such a great high priest, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, those are just the most precious words you'll ever know when you're in the trials of life, especially those deep, elongated trials that just you have no real answer to, right? He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and here is at the very heart of our study this morning and next week, yet without sin. We can't comprehend that in this bag of bones we live in. Because we still struggle with sin every day, in every way, right? By God's design, by the way. <laughs> Yet without sin, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in a time of need. And we looked at this passage yesterday morning with a group of men that I meet with. And one of the things that rose up as we reflected on this passage is how often do we think we need to run back to the cross? Just run back to the cross, right? And there's a component that I think is very real and very true. But I would offer from this passage, encourage you to think about, as believers, particularly after our time this morning and next, as we look at what God has done, should we be running back to the cross? Or should we be running right here to the throne room of God? Because this is what the cross has accomplished on our behalf. It has torn down the veil that separates us from that throne room. So the reason for the cross in all of its fullness is to give us direct access to that throne room of God. So we ought to be running to the throne room of God where we're being invited right here by the writer of Hebrews and not back to the cross. If you'll allow me to say that and there's one that, boy, could they take that out of context and make a mess out of it, right? But you see what I'm saying? We've, we have access to the throne room of God where our great high priest who understands every single struggle that we have, especially those ones that are most heartbreaking, right? Just precious. I wanted to, I, I've commented how much I have enjoyed the kind of cloud of witnesses that we have. And certainly in the case of the book of Hebrews, you know, two of those are Dr. Boyce and Dr. Lloyd-Jones, just wonderful men of God. I want to just read from you a little bit, and this morning is going to feel a little bit, um, and I lectury, because we're going to be doing a word study, but we're going to study those words from the scriptures for the most part, which I think, again, is the best place for us to learn and understand what the Bible means is to have a very good concordance that gets you into the very word of God because it is all so beautifully um, harmonious. Boyce says, the, the important thing, however, is not so much whether you understand or even know of these Old Testament prophecies, but whether they change, whether the change they speak about is a reality for you. You hear what he's saying? This is Jesus talking about, you search the scriptures as though in them you have eternal life but it is they that testify about me. So there's your answer. The object of everything we believe in the Christian faith is Jesus, right? And all the knowledge in the world of the scriptures will not save you if he is not the object of everything we believe in and everything we trust in, right? And that's why that's why this passage to Paul was so important so that we would understand what Jesus has done and why it is only Jesus, right? And Boyce is bringing that point out here in a very, very important way. He says, you may not know much theology, terms like justification, propitiation, redemption, and as we heard last week, and I'll read it again this morning, those are very important to understand. They help anchor us in why Jesus. They protect us from that fearful moment that when someone walks up to us and says, why Jesus alone? Defend that for me, you Christian. This exclusivity of Jesus, why? This is the text that allows us to do that in a wonderful way, right? Boyce goes on to say, you know what your past life has been. You remember your past sins. You are aware of your failures. 
the question we must ask is, is that truly a former past state for you? Can you say, that was true of me once, right? I really was like the person described in the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans. That was me. That's why that's there. It's why it precedes all this wonderful theology. That is the condition of every one of us apart from a saving relationship with Christ, right? And the question becomes, as we've discussed, can we and the people we witness to truly say that was me? Because the step away from that is to say, there was something good enough in me that allowed the cooperation of all that Jesus has done for the two of us to get together and be saved. And Paul just categorically annihilates that idea throughout this book, right? And Boyce is, once again, as we head into this passage, drawing our attention. And there's just this beautiful, if you go do, look, do a word study, and it's mostly in the Pauline corpus about once were, you're going to find a beautiful study on this very point. Such as some of you once were. Now, this is important in the ever difficult uh, life of being sanctified that we'll get into as we move forward in the study. That was true of me once, is the proper response. I really was like the person described, but that was before. Now Christ has come, He has saved me. And I have become an entirely new creature because of him. Is that our answer to this challenge? Where are you in your Christian faith? Is that, do we have a biblical basis for that response? And that's what Paul's trying to answer. So I want to read to you what the way Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks to this issue, commented on by Dr. Boyce. He says, Lloyd-Jones suggests and I thought this was so helpful, and I would encourage you that when we're done with next week's study, to pull, down, pull this study down, print it out, and just keep it as you witness and disciple folks, right? Lord Jones suggests that this is one way by which you can test whether or not you are a true Christian, and by which you can measure and strengthen yourself if you are. That sounds pretty important, doesn't it? Right? Lloyd-Jones says, and I wanted to share this because this is, this is my walk. These are my struggles. These are your struggles. Right? When the devil attacks you, and suggest to you that you are not a Christian and that you have never been a Christian because of what is still in your heart or because of what you are still doing or because of something you once did. When he comes and thus accuses you, the question is, what do you say to him? Ever have those battles, those doubts? When that kind of flare of thoughts in you say, where in the world did that come from? How can I love my Lord and yet have a thought like that come straight out of the blue, right? Lloyd-Jones asks, do you agree with him? Or do you say to him, Yes, that was true in our beautiful opening words of this passage. But now, do you hold up these words against him? Or when perhaps you feel condemned as you read the scripture, as you read the law in the Old Testament, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, and as you feel that you are undone, do you remain lying on the ground in hopelessness or do you lift your head and say, but now? 
And he goes on to say, this is the essence of the Christian position. This is how our faith answers the accusation of the law, the accusation of the conscience, and everything else that would condemn and depress us. Right? You ever get thrown to the mat? <laughs> Struggle with a sinful situation in your life, a sinful pattern in your life? He says, and Lloyd-Jones battled with depression over these matters and as a pastor, and he wrote beautifully on the issue of depression as a, as a Christian, as a saint, from his own experience as a pastor, walking through this dark depression that, that rose up out of the war and everything that was happening in Europe during his ministry, World War II, right? He says, these indeed are very wonderful world words, and it is most important that we should lay hold of them and realize their tremendous importance and their real significance as he taught about this section of scripture and the words that the Holy Spirit used in this section. And the important matter is when those attacks come, Do we stand firm in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf? Because we have no contribution to that. It was all the work of God. That's the but now that's revealed in this precious section of Scripture. That's how it anchors us down into this precious faith that, too, is a gift from God, as we'll see this morning. And where you end up with is, in many ways, beyond your own experience, Jeffrey, how much of your salvation is of you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we make one contribution to our salvation, and that is the sin that has condemned us. God did it all. That's what's so beautiful about just believing the Bible and not reading the Bible and saying, ah, that can't be what the Holy Spirit means. I'm going to come up with a better way to explain that to people who I want to be Christians. Right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessed Son and his blessed faithfulness to you and the precious work that was decreed from before the foundation of the world and then made manifest to us in so many wonderful and different ways. And Lord, we have but one thing to do. And that is to exalt you and to praise you and to thank you for what we could not only never do, but apart from the work of our triune God, we would never want to do it. We would much rather, like Satan, exalt ourselves and usurp your throne and take your seat and say, I will, I will, my way. And yet, Lord, you made us all anew and we thank you so much for what is already complete in heaven and what is not yet finished in the course of our lives in the Christian church and all the saints but one day it will and we just thank you for the faith to trust in those truths as scripture pours them into us and so we praise you, and we do this always in your precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
So I want to just read the passage again, Romans 3, 21 through 26, and just, just pay attention to what jumps out at you in this passage, and it ought to be a lot. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it over the course of the entire Old Testament saints' lives, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all, here comes the qualifier, who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. There's a mouthful of doctrinal studies right there. <laughs> through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness and this throws us right back to Romans 2 4 because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus so a handful of the words that we want to dig into over the next couple of weeks the righteousness of God believing faith what is sin this justification set of words, justification, just, justifier, justified, grace, redemption, propitiation, and forbearance. And again, Boyce, it's helpful to hear his exhortation to us that no one can claim really to understand the Bible unless he or she knows something about the meaning of these terms. And this is why these old-timey saints have spilt so much ink on these words, because they ground us in our understanding of why Christ alone is absolutely where our faith and our trust can and should be, and that nothing of ourselves can contribute to that. So, I want to look at the righteousness of God. And I want to just give you some things to think about, about this righteousness of God and how it's used in this text. And then we'll look at some of the scriptures. So have your fingers or your digital Bible ready. But this righteousness of God in verse 21 reveals that there is a righteousness of God. Very important. It is the righteousness of God. It has nothing to do with our righteousness. Of course, Isaiah has a little bit to say about that in Isaiah 64, right? What our righteousness is. This is a righteousness of God and is the, the absolute foundation of this passage and why it has come about for us. And this righteousness of God that is distinct and that righteousness comes from God. So I want you to see there is a righteousness of God and that righteousness of God also comes from God to us. So two things are embedded in there. The righteousness of God that is manifested in the perfect life of Jesus Christ, which is then given to us in some way. And Paul wants to make sure we don't stop at some way. He wants to show us exactly how God has chosen for that to take place. 
as the anchor for everything else he's going to teach in this book. It is a righteousness that comes from God by grace only through genuine, saving, regenerated, and manifested faith in an unshakable belief in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And all of that is completely apart from any effort of man and by the efforts of man to earn favor, the scriptures say that grace, which is a free gift, is nullified. Now think about that for a minute. That kind of made me stop cold. When you think about how many people are pursuing faith by trying to fill in the blank. And the scriptures say that voids the grace of God. Why? Because you can't exalt Christ supremely from heaven and somehow take some credit for this from him. The Father says, my grace is null and void to you. Now think about how serious that is in our witnessing and our loved ones in this time of easy believism where there's no grounding or desire for these truths. Kind of shakes you, I hope. Look at Galatians 2.21. Just to make this point, because I would never say anything like that if there wasn't a passage right behind it. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, through obedience, through an effort of man, then, look at the seriousness, then Christ died for no purpose. Look at Romans 5.19. And we're, gonna, we're building up on this righteousness of God. Romans 5.19, and Paul works this out all the way through the book of Romans. It is absolutely central and really in his entire corpus. But Romans 5.19 beautifully says about this righteousness of God. For as by the one man's disobedient the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And here's this transfer again. You hear about the great exchange. Well, we're getting at it right here. Somehow God took the righteousness of God through Christ and he's going to transfer it to us who are altogether sinners the moment we were saved, and to this very day. Right? Here's another narrative on this from Paul in Romans 10, 3 through 4. And quite frankly, this is a passage. As you're lovingly and thoughtfully and prayerfully witnessing to people trapped in works-based religions, which, by the way, is far more rampant than we realize, right within the Protestant and confessing church. This is a passage that gets right at it, and it should tell us there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Look at Romans 10, 3 through 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and here comes the voiding of grace. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
Why does a religious person not submit to God's righteousness? Good question, isn't it? Anybody want to take a swing at it? I wouldn't. <laughs> exactly. What is their own thing, Rick, or anybody else? What, what thing is specifically Paul talking about? Right. In this case, yes, it's that thing that makes me righteous because of what I've done. There is the means by which we literally void the grace of God. And why would God be so relentless about that? Because most would say, are you serious? Come on. You mean being a good person is an offense to God? Right? That, that one kind of comes at you. And you better be ready for it. That is a dart. What do you say? Yeah. Yep. So there you go. And remember my question, why is the father so relentless about this issue? It's right there, okay? So if, if, that is, if that is a good response and you don't have a good answer for it, what does that make the father? It makes him the monster that everybody often believes he is because he crucified his son and didn't have to. That's why it voids grace. This is the bedrock. Because you all know, if you've witnessed into people who believe a variety of things, and you introduce the exclusivity of Christ, you just opened up this discussion. Right? This is why these words matter so much and understanding behind them. And the fact that this dear person who is defending their faith, to Rick's point, could very well be voiding the grace of God because they're rejecting and not submitting to the righteousness of God that condemns us with our mouth shut, right? So you see why Paul spent two and a half chapters so that he could get to this point. I'm sure he was so anxious to get to this point in this beautiful letter. Look at verse 4, Romans 10. And here it is, and just such beauty, almost Johannine, you know, economy of words. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And what you have to ask inwardly and as we're witnessing is, believes What? Because we know even the demons believed. Right? Last note on this. This righteousness of God is the pure and perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the law. And therefore, the only possible keeper of that law that could be acceptable to the Father. That was Jesus. And all his holy standard. And there's the problem. Your, your friend has a standard way down here. The Father's standard is Jesus. That's why you stand on the shore and you jump as far as you want and heaven laughs because you got three feet and the chasm between you and heaven is what Jesus described to the rich man, right, about Lazarus. It's a chasm. You can't even, you can't even fathom crossing that chasm because it is God's work to transfer us from that domain of darkness to this beautiful kingdom. 
It's all, as Jeff said, it's all their work. And our opportunity to exalt the Lord so much more when it's not littered with all kinds of self-righteous lies, right? Believing faith. I pulled this from kind of the cloud of, of several wonderful commentaries. A faith given by God, revealed through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the justifying work of Christ that settles the hostility between the sinner and their creator, producing an eternal fountain of love for the triune God, Christ and his work on our behalf, and their precious word that then conforms our lives through the Holy Spirit, through the growing understanding and obedience to the word of God, so that Christ may reign supreme in our hearts, leading us and compelling us to go make disciples of those whom the Lord has drawn to him unto, I thought this was so helpful, the sweet fragrance of eternal life and or the fragrance unto eternal death because part of our responsibility in the Christian faith is to speak the word of God having no idea which direction God is taking that person. Some unto the sweet aroma of Christ and his finished work. Some, usually divided by, oh, I'm a good person, right into the stench of eternal death, lived out temporally under the wrath of God. We don't determine that. We never ultimately know, right, who God's going to save. But we are faithful and responsible to bring these truths no matter what. Because God's going to use it. It will not return void. Right? This is the way Jesus, and this is just such a helpful place to go. Look at John 8.30. It's a fascinating section of scripture. Really, John 5 through John 8 is just one of the most intense sections of scripture I think you'll, you'll ever read in the course of our Lord's life. And John captures, as he was saying these things, many believed in him, Jesus. Now, at that point, so much of the modern church would get a big line and a big puddle of water and start baptizing people, right? This is, the, this is the essence of the commission we have, to go make disciples, right? It's exactly what Jesus is. He says, I'm going to show you a difference between those who believe in something and those who have been brought to new life by the Holy Spirit because it shows up in John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So Jesus confirms that there is a belief in something going on here. As Grady and I, it's an attachment faith that is deadly. Yeah, I got me Jesus. He helps me a lot. That's what it sounds like, right? Jesus just reframes that entirely right here. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if, big word there, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you remain in my word, if the course of your life is a continuing remaining and abiding in the word of God and taking in the word of God and letting the spirit of God who is in you transforming your life step by step, Sin defeated by sin. And that is the course of our life until the very last breath we take. Right? Abiding in the word of God. Then you are truly my disciples. And over the course of those taking in the word of God and absorbing the understanding, he says, and you will know the truth 
So there's the next progression of the maturing saint who is, as the scriptures say, being sanctified, right? Which, by the way, that passage that we'll read maybe today, probably next week, says we are already perfected though we are being sanctified. Now, get your head around that. Positionally, you're already perfected in Christ. It's as good as done, Miss Judy. And one day, it will be completely fulfilled. But in the course of this life, in the work of the Holy Spirit, as the opportunity to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, we continue to struggle with sin and are being sanctified progressively to show the power and ways of God that we could never fully comprehend if we didn't hold fast to the scriptures. That's what Jesus is communicating here. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think over the course of the Christian life, as we were talking the other night, there should be 10,000 of these set frees in our life. You know what I mean? As the word of God comes in and lays itself right against this sin, and that sin gets put to death, you've just been set free from that sin. When we're thinking wrongly about the world, and the scriptures come in and just squares our thinking. We've just been set free from that wrong thinking that can really wreak havoc with our witness and our own soul's contentment. What is, what is Jesus teaching us there? Be in the word of God with the reverence that is due a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us in this wondrous way and then preserve it from the attacks of man over the entire course of its history, right? A relentless effort to destroy all the Bibles. What a perfect way to make sure we got lots of them, right? Galatians 3.22 But the scripture and this idea of believing faith and everything we've talked about. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. There's Romans 1, 18 through 32, all the way out through 320, so that every mouth may be shut. Everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Scripture just imprisons everything under sin. So let's just take a look at sin. And here's this word cloud again I wanted to share. And again, this will be in my notes on the site that Rick puts up. Um, sin. Any and every word, thought, intention, doubt, or action that is an offense to our holy and perfect and righteous and just triune God. I want to look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And in this passage, the law of first mention came to my mind because there are so many things in this passage that show up in the law of first mention. I, I kind of ran out of room. Right at the very beginning of the scriptures, you see God's righteousness. You see the holiness of his commands. You see man's responsibility to keep them. You see man's unrighteous wisdom show up to know better than God or therefore make himself to be like God. You see death, the same death that has come to all humanity. You see a blood sacrifice foreshadowed by the cloth. You see shame, the guilty conscience, the running from God, and then you see Satan as a masterfully supreme created being who is the first deceiver, 
and the first murderer and sin in its original raw form to simply accept the invitation to simply doubt God. That's the sin here. And how did Satan do it? Did God really say? And he did that at a time when the flesh just wanted what it wanted at that point. There, there's our uh, time of temptation when God's given us a way out through the word of God and obedience to it. And a big old door over here that says, but the eyes and the flesh and the pride. Here's how it sounds today. You deserve this. You deserve this, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, going this way instead of the way which God gave you out because he always gives us a way out, right? So it's a crossroad. And this is where the word of God set right in the middle of that is so important to our lives, right? So important to our lives. Simply to doubt God despite the clear knowledge of his commands that he would not do as he plainly said he would do and sin would not produce the consequence that he clearly said it would. In other words, making God the liar so we can be right in our pursuit of sin. See what these old-timey saints just mined out of these beautiful scriptures. So just with all that in mind, let's just, we'll finish here this morning. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and just look at this introduction of sin and all of its attributes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Statement number one, the mastery of Satan. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, interestingly enough, exactly what God commanded her. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It was a commandment with a warning that brought in a consequence that we can't even begin to imagine the magnitude of. The entire human race to this moment was right before Eve. And she knew it precisely. But the serpent said to the woman, back to Ryan's point, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, and here comes the, here comes the opportunity, Ryan. Wait a minute. I can be like God? There it is. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now, here's part of the mastery of Satan because was that a true statement? That their eyes would be opened and they would all of a sudden know good and evil? You ever think about this? What did Adam and Eve know only at this point? Good. We can't comprehend that. They only knew good. Satan told them exactly the truth. You do this and your eyes are going to be open because right now they're closed to evil. You don't know evil. You only know good. And the very moment their eyes were open to evil, what flooded in? The conscience kicked into gear for us and shame and nakedness, right? That this is this sin that now continues to just work itself out in humanity. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. 
This is the piece that stuns me deeply. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What is so stunning is that Adam was standing right there. Men, what are we commanded to do for our wives? Exactly. He stood there. He didn't step in and lead his wife out of that temptation. And the condemnation of humanity was Adam. Eve was deceived. It was Adam who sinned. He stood there and said nothing. Right? Our protection of our wives and our families is rooted in our understanding of the word of God and the holiness of God and the wondrous work of Christ. And we had better be able to protect our families because there's a massive consequence here. And it's called sin, right? So that, this is all part of what Christ has so beautifully accomplished, right? So we'll finish up next week. We'll start with justification, just, justify, or justified, and we may never get out of there. So, yes, sir. Right. Precisely. Thank you, guys. See you next week.